controversial apology from former head of the army over malaria drug. Because I had first-hand experience of what could happen, I couldn't see the point of putting myself in the same position, so I took something else. Pakistan's crucial role in Afghanistan's stability and trying to boost recruitment for the Army Reserve on exercise in Croatia. Hello there, welcome to Sit Rep with me, Tim Cooper. The former head of the army, Lord Dannett, has caused controversy this week after admitting that he didn't take the anti-malarial drug Larium after his son suffered mental health problems after taking it. He was speaking in an interview for the Victoria Derbyshire programme on BBC Two. Not the person that he would normally be, a normally very bubbly, um, personable sort of individual. Um, he got very withdrawn and we got very, very, we got very worried about him. And I think if that had been unrecognised and untreated, frankly, who knows where it would have gone. Larian was given to thousands of service personnel, and Lord Dannant's apologised to those that were prescribed it under his command. In response, the MOD says it has a duty to protect personnel from malaria, and in some cases, Larian would be the most effective way of doing this. Well, yesterday, I went to see Colonel Andrew Marriott in North Yorkshire, who has prescribed Larian ahead of a deployment to Sierra Leone in 2003. He suffered severe side effects, including severe sleep disturbance. He had this damning response to Lord Dannant's comment. I've been very disappointed that he and his successors as in service chiefs have um, all declined to engage with this issue. Um, but it's really quite disappointing, although I'm glad he's finally admitted it. It's, uh, it's a pretty shallow piece from a service chief to effectively say, that's all right for the troops but I'll have something else for myself because I know this drug is dangerous. That is not what we expect of our officers and commanders. You lead by example. You can't possibly have a situation where you say, your equipment is bad, but I'll have something different. The drugs you take is bad, I'll have something different. That us and them belongs to an entirely different era. And... It may have taken a degree of moral courage to come out and finally admit that, but General Dannett and his successors, in fact even the recently retired Chief of the Defence Staff, General Houghton, have all set their faces against addressing the issue of larium toxicity. Colonel Andrew Marriott, strong views there on the comments from Lord Dannett on Larium. With us on SITREP this week, as ever, our defence analyst Christopher Lee, and down the line as well, Royal Marines uh, former officer and military historian, Major General Julian Thompson. Um, I'm going to come to you, Christopher, first, because you said to me just then as we were listening to that, I don't get this. What, what were you meaning? Um, I got involved in something with, with not Larium, but a, t a totally different other uh, um, drug that was being prescribed. When you... As the colonel said, uh, you say, well, I use different... Uh, you can use that equipment. I know it's not the best, so I'm going to use something different. Therefore, as you know, that, that's mm. wrong. What he fails to get is we're talking in medical language here. And so we all know that if you give a certain person a drug, that person will, according to his metabolism, yeah. will react in a certain way. And I certainly know that General Dannett was markedly under the impression that it was he the Danit body, if you like, in the blood system that was reacting rather than saying, I don't believe that, I'll, uh, I'll get something else. I see, OK. Um, Julian Thompson, now, you've taken Larium, not in a military context, but you, you took it. 
what happened to you? Well, I took it on safari in Africa for two successive safaris, and both Jane and I, and she's a, a nurse, started to get hallucinations, and so we stopped taking it. We then went to the clinic where we go, before we go to Africa, and said, we've had this problem. They said, well, a lot of other people have as well. Don't take it if I were you. Take uh, some stuff called malarone instead. So I've always been pretty suspicious of larium ever since. Yes, I mean, malarone is, is the common alternate drug for this. Now... Picking up on what Christopher said, we heard Lord Dannett yesterday, Julian, saying about this, hearing about the very sad issue with his son, who suffered side effects from larium, and then saying, look, when I was in command of the army, I refused to take it, um, but I let others take it. Now, Christopher's outlined that he thinks that was because Lord Dannett was speaking very personally about himself, but many feel that it's a, an example of do as I say, not as I do, from a very senior officer who can do such things and, and not basically caring enough about his troops. What, what do you think? Well, I, I, I agree with Christopher's view that I'm sure that Lord Dannett thought that it was his own personal metabolism that didn't react well to, Larry, to uh, this drug, and so he stopped taking it. I think also um, there's been a huge amount of discussion about this, uh, and we're still waiting for the MOD to come up with a, with a definitive answer on what is right. I have a sneaking suspicion, which is perhaps a rather naughty thought, that there are uh, huge shed loads of, of this drug around and they're not about to get rid of it because they want to see if they can go on giving it. I mean, perhaps that's a rather naughty thought. And they can also imagine that my learned friend is lurking around the corner saying, hello, 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 there's probably shed loads of money that you can get in compensation for this as well. Absolutely. So the MOD is going to have to get this very, very right. The thing is, though, if I was a member of the armed services listening to this broadcast now and, and hearing us talk about this, I'd still put that to one side and go, look, they're still saying that larium should be prescribed, yet I'm hearing that all these people are suffering. The real point here is the lack of the MOD gripping this situation, isn't it? Yeah, coming go, to a get, conclusion. go and get a copy of what the Americans have reported yeah. on it and, and start, yeah. anybody who's bothered, start there. Absolutely. The, the MOD are just lacking grip. Christopher, any final points on this? I think that one of the... Uh, it, it's you know larium is, is is one example there are many ex examples of uh, social distinctions uh, in 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 how we look after our service servicemen and women there are uh, different drugs that we've had on many many occasions even to sort of drugs that just keep you going because you can't sleep uh, and the MOD has always, always managed to collect, himself, collect itself a, a bad reputation for the way it's handled the subject. Still to come, why employers are being given an insight into army training in Croatia. Individuals are showing their own initiative and determination. There's a whole plethora of transferable skills that are there for the employers to see. Yes, Afghan security forces are being killed or wounded in attacks by the Taliban and other groups in even higher numbers in 2016 than last year. That's from US Brigadier General Charles Cleveland, a senior spokesman for NATO's Operation Resolute Support, and he gave it in a briefing to journalists from Afghanistan. Authorities estimate about 5,000 local police and troops were killed in 2015, with an additional 15,000 wounded. Well, Anthony King is Professor in War Studies at the University of Warwick. Uh, Professor King, welcome to the programme. Damning statistics, though, aren't they? Yes, welcome. You know, these are showing up the NATO training effort, aren't they? Um, 
Well, they're certainly serious statistics, and and certainly um, the increasing seriousness of Taliban offensives year on year is definitely serious, and and, and NATO and the West would need to uh, treat that with some 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 uh, caution and care. But I, I think it's also uh, important not to overreact. I mean, um, the Afghan security forces, unfortunately, have been taking very serious casualties right from uh, uh, the start of the uh, Afghan operation, really, and especially from uh, 2006 as the NATO to offensive uh, down in the south took took took, took place so um you know they're very serious figures um uh, very worrying i think for the security force especially for the army but it, i think it would be one would need to be cautious about extending that seriousness to therefore a complete strategic catastrophe and a taliban takeover is therefore inevitable um i i don't think that follows through and one point here to note is um People forget about the Taliban level of uh, of casualties. Um, uh, the Afghan security forces have taken many casualties and reconstituted themselves, and so has the Taliban. So, I think we need to be a little bit careful. Absolutely realistic, but but careful about this. Yeah, it's an interesting point about the Taliban. Definitely, they have been taking casualties, but they are fighting for an ideological cause, whereas the Afghan security forces very often are just fighting for the cash, and there ain't much of that. How sustainable well, are they going forward? Well, I think we need to be very careful about that. Um, I mean, obviously, there's some, there's some evidence around the edges in terms of the corruption within the Afghan forces, where the money goes, and lower-level fighters. Uh, but it is not true uh, that the Afghan National Army, especially, the Afghan National Police is a rather different entity, but it is not true that the Afghan National Army is just a bunch of mercenaries who don't care about their country and about Afghanistan. Um, many of them are committed to the fight against the Taliban, not least because their own fans lose their own towns, their own communities and tribes would be under serious threat were the Taliban to take over again. So, uh, you know, I think I think we need to be a little bit careful about how weak and, and corrupt the Afghan National Army is. Yeah, I mean, I, I, to I totally take that point and, and agree with you, actually. I spent some time training with the Afghan National Army, for example, um, in Afghanistan, and, and they really are committed. But the skill set is the thing that's lacking, isn't it? Well, for sure. And this comes back to absolutely to your point about casualties. It was absolutely obvious that when the when NATO withdrew with all the assets that it had and all the skill and training that its troops had, uh, that the Afghan National Army and the National Police Force were going to struggle to take to hold on to certain areas that NATO had fought very hard to secure. And secondly, that with the reduction of the professionalism and the air and the complicated I-star assets, the casualties were absolutely inevitably going to go up for the Afghan National Army. And that's exactly what we're finding. But it doesn't mean total catastrophe, I think. One final point, Anthony, and that is um, we've heard about the US sending in about 100 troops back to Helmand to help the Afghan forces. Should we see more of that? Well, I don't think we'll see more of it from NATO, Western European NATO powers. I think that the US will do more of it. The Taliban seem to have two strategies. One is to gradually try and take districts, especially in the Helmand area, which they see as exposed and I think rightly judged as exposed and, and, and takeable, uh, combined with terrorist assaults essentially on Kabul. And uh, I think the Americans will will be engaged in slightly more fighting than they intended to, than indeed that the pre President Obama intended to. But, but I don't see a large-scale return to major combat operations. Indeed, one might say that was the wrong course of action for NATO to take in the first place anyway. 
Professor Anthony King uh, from the University of Warwick. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. From Afghanistan to a key player in the region's political landscape, totally intertwined, in fact, Pakistan. Last month, the Pentagon withheld $300 million in military assistance to the country. It was a sign of ongoing frustration with Islamabad for not acting against militants fueling violence in Afghanistan. Defence Secretary Ash Carter refused to say Pakistan is taking sufficient action against the Haqqani network, which is a Taliban affiliate. Well, joining us to discuss Pakistan's role in the region is Kyle Alton, a Middle East analyst and research fellow with the think tank the Henry Jackson Society. Um, Kyle, very clear signals here from the Pentagon to Pakistan. Yes, they are. They've been coming in since 2011. Relations are a bit better than that now, but obviously when bin Laden was found inside Pakistan, and it was quite obvious that somebody at a fairly senior level knew he was there, uh, the U.S. has been unable to avoid the conclusion that part of the problem in Afghanistan is Pakistan. Yeah, I mean, that's the key point, isn't it? I mean, now we've had the withdrawdown of uh, uh, NATO troops from the country. It's even more important that Pakistan steps up against its own militants, which control a huge swathe of that border area. They do. Uh, one of the things is that the Taliban itself is in part a proxy of Pakistan, mm. and it was always that way. I mean, Pakistan was one of, I think, three governments that recognised the Taliban as the government of Afghanistan the last time round. And they have continued to support them at really very senior levels. They harbour the leadership in, the, in Quetta, in Pakistan. And they were part of the reason that the Taliban was able to hide the fact that its leader had been dead for two years. So it's a very grave situation. But the U.S. made itself by coming in through Pakistan. It made itself strategically dependent on the Pakistanis. And they've been unable to find another way to keep the war going in Afghanistan without this reliance on Pakistan, which is the problem. I mean, we tend to think of Pakistan as a country, which of course it is. That's a dull thing to say in one concept, but it isn't in another, and that is the fact that governmental forces do not control the entirety of the country, do they? No, there's the large uh, the northwest frontier uh, that's under essentially local and tribal control, and obviously the civilian government has very little power as well. The intelligence services and the military do more or less what they like, and even within that chain of command, various factions do what they like, apart from the leadership. So, a yeah, very complicated country. Yeah, it is extremely complicated. Let's bring back Christopher Lee and Julian Thompson. Christopher, your thoughts on this. How important is Pakistan to the future of Afghanistan? I think, first and foremost, we have to remember that when we talk about Afghanistan, um, I, su I suppose because we've had sort of 15 years and we've got to fix this type sort of hyperbole um, going on from Washington and other, mm. other countries. We've got to realise this is not the way the system can work there. We also have to recognise the regional complexities. There can be no, or it's unlikely there could be a solution that we would call a solution anyway, in Afghanistan without Pakistan, India, the Central Asian Republics and probably Iran being involved in some way and then a guarantor of the actions that will result from that. And that is the complexity. It is Afghanistan is not simply an Afghanistan problem. Mm. It is something which is quite a regional, regional pineapple that is yet to be shared. I mean, Tony, we sorry, Kyle, apologies. Um, we've seen about $14 billion a year the US have been pumping in to Pakistan, spent on their defence. If they cut that down, as they appear to have done now, will that spur them into action, would you say? I highly doubt it. Mm. For Pakistan, the, the consideration always is India. 
and Afghanistan is considered strategic depth against the Indians. So any attempt, for instance, to find a regional solution by bringing India in, which the U.S. is increasingly trying to do, the Pakistanis will react even more virulently against that and sponsor terrorism both directly against India and more of it in Afghanistan. It's actually one of the, the things that is problematic about a regional solution is that it means giving Pakistan more influence sort of by politics than they've been able to take on the battlefield. So there's a sort of moral hazard in, mm. in doing that. Julian Thompson, you sit and watch, as we all do, developments unfolding in Afghanistan. Many predicted it would go this way. It's terribly depressing, and it must be for anybody who's served there. It must be very depressing for people who served there, and a lot of them that I've spoken to will say, well, we got it wrong. I mean, they really are quite honest about it. Senior people, some of them, who've done many tours there. Uh, we didn't understand the problem from the very beginning, and that's partly the reason that we didn't understand it. Uh, Christopher's put his finger on it. It's a very complicated, multi-layered situation with lots of players with their fingers in it and or wanting their fingers in it, and it's not amenable to a simple solution. Christopher, just a, a, a thought here, Kyle, really for you. When um, when Julian says, you know, we got it wrong or whatever, the truth is there are a lot of people like you, Kyle, who are, who are around throughout the process here who weren't getting it wrong. But governments, the way government is structured and the way it has to react, didn't take the sort of notice that it might have taken. Why is it that you have this remarkable collegiate of expertise uh, and the leaders eventually say, yeah, but we've got to go and do it the way that we said we would do it in the manifesto. I think that sometimes it's, um, there is obviously a problem between how expertise gets to government or more precisely doesn't. But there's also some of it is political constraints. So say with Pakistan, there's always this problem that it's a legacy of the Cold War. It's an ally officially. So it was always difficult to call it other than that. And it took really bin Laden being discovered next to a military base before anybody could say, maybe we shouldn't be so heavily dependent on Islamabad. Mm. Um, so it was it's just one of those things where you were kind of trapped by decisions made in the past. And it was less, um, it was the cause of least resistance to go along with, with the idea that Pakistan was an ally in this. Part of least resistance is always a dangerous thing, or can be in many cases. Carl Orton from the Henry Jackson Society, thank you very much for your time today. Christopher and Julian, two bits of other business today. One for each of you, I think, really. Let's, let's go to you, Julian, first. And uh, leaders of the Czech Republic and Hungary say a joint European army is needed to bolster the security of the European Union. What do you think? Well, we're hearing this a lot, of, and I think it's total nonsense. There's, there's an organisation called NATO which we rely on to deter the Russians. The Russians are not going to be deterred by a Euro army w without the Americans. It's the Americans that give NATO its muscle. They spend a huge amount of money on it. And if we think that we can set up a sort of parallel army cheaply, which will do the job better than we're deluding ourselves, and all it does is play into the hands of the isolationist trend, which we see in America, who say, OK, if those guys want to sort it out themselves, let them, and we'll stop paying for NATO. If you go, um, if you go back to um, the 1940s, 1949, in fact, January 1949, with the Americans, we were just about to sign the dotted line for NATO, and the Americans said, "Well, you know, the Europeans ought to be looking after themselves. This is a European matter. Well, what, what would it take?" And Montgomery, who really wasn't <coughs> involved so much then, he said, "It would take 97 divisions, and you could almost take the whole population of free Europe, and you wouldn't fight 90, 97 divisions of people." I think the thing to remember is this, very, very simply. Um, a European army would be 
of the, if you like, from the dissident groups of the EU. And it's not a question of would they be in competition with NATO, because the answer is no. But what you would probably get, exchequers, chancellors of the exchequer, financial ministers saying this is a European budget for defence, it doesn't go into the, in, into the obligations we have at NATO. It's a much deeper and a far more dangerous thing than just a political idea that, in fact came up in the mm. 1990s with Tony Blair and Jacques Chirac. Yeah, I think we need to come back to this one and talk about it in more depth because it is worrying consequentially as to what might happen here. But I do want to talk about somewhere we very seldom talk about on the programme, and that is Colombia. And uh, last weekend, Christopher, a ceasefire by the leftist rebel group FARC came into effect. Uh, it brings to an end, really, one of the world's longest-running and deadliest insurgencies, but we hear so little about it in this country. Half a century. Half a century, isn't it? I mean, would you parallel this with our own struggles in this country, IRA, for example, and the ceasefire there? It, I did it where I think it does. And I mean, Julian has served in Northern Ireland, has got this better than I have, I think. But... <clears throat> When you have a ceasefire like that with FARC, you have to say to yourself, what about amnesties? Uh, the country was torn to shreds. Families were torn and, and scattered because of the killings, the, 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 the murders, uh, the straightforward consequences of the one of the biggest, if not the biggest, narcotics trade in the whole, mm. of, you know, in the whole of the world. Um, can you imagine a mother... Um, father or whoever standing up and saying, well, look, does this mean that they're all free now? That they're not accountable? And yet, more and more, we are talking about people have to pay the price. They, if, they, if they commit atrocities, then they will be found out. They will go to The Hague or whatever mm. it is. So I think it's a far more complex thing. Uh, rejoice. You know, they've got an agreement after all these, after, after four years of, of hard talking. But this whole thing about uh, uh, amnesty for the ter terrible atrocities that took place, that is not going to go away. And there is waiting uh, another small army, opposition army, to take advantage of that. Always, always others waiting in the wings. Now then, as efforts continue to recruit more reserves to the army, 100 part-time troops from 51st Highland, the 7th Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland, which is easy for me to say, have been training in Croatia. Seven Scots have been on their two-week annual training camp and are currently doing well in terms of recruiting. But overall, much more needs to be done to attract more people to the reservist forces. Our reporter Ali Gibson has this special report for SITREP from Exercise Sava Star. Good night! At the Red Earth Training Area in Canin, these troops from Seven Scots are infantrymen attacking an enemy position, training alongside their NATO allies from Croatia. But back home, they're also policemen, plumbers, graduates, citizen soldiers who do this in their spare time from their main job. Private James Gilbert and Lance Corporal Gary Carling. I wanted more from my life. I wanted to do something different, wanted to travel wanted to go out of my comfort zone, to be honest. It gives you a lot of confidence. Your leadership skills get sharpened up as well. So when back home I've got to go and deal with something, then it's not as daunting. Sava Star is the annual two-week camp for these reservists, a chance to consolidate their skills. And with 130 troops signing up in the last year, the battalion is recruiting well. Room clear, one enemy dead. 35% of those here on exercise are new. Commanding Officer, Lieutenant Colonel Piers Strudwick. 
You've let young Lance Corporals and Corporals take a bit of responsibility, deliver lessons, allow the reservist chain of command to take responsibility for the administration of the company and, and to really let people undertake the roles and responsibilities that they are employed for as reservists. The government 2020 targets to boost reservists may have been around for a while now. But with a recent struggle for numbers, the Army Reserve are still trying to get the message out to business and industry. The suicide and the LDS site can also fit on LNG. Several Scottish employers have been invited on this exercise, so they can see this idea of transferable skills firsthand. Ron McGregor is from the Highland Reserve Forces and Cadets Association. It doesn't matter if it's a young person who is a lance corporal in charge of half a section, they've still just demonstrating leadership, command and control skills. Individuals are showing their own initiative and determination. There's a whole plethora of transferable skills that are there for the employers to see. Some of these employers are from big firms, already supporting reservists. But for other, smaller companies, employing someone with military experience is top of their list. Ian Peacock and David McAlpine. It's obviously quite a task to come out here and uh, see them training. It takes a certain individual to commit to something like this. I want to come to find out because we're looking for guys. We're looking for guys that's been disciplined and structured rather than normal guys just off the street and things. So we know these guys have been trained and uh, followed structure. For Seven Scots, Exercise Sava Star is about developing young talent in their new recruits. But by opening up the visit to employers, they're also hoping to change minds and show that employing reservists can be a benefit rather than a drawback. Ali Gibson for BFBS in Kanin, Croatia. Yeah, lucky old Ali Gibson in Croatia there, where the weather is lovely this time of year, but important mission for her and the people there. Going on that exercise, Julian Thompson is still with us. And Julian, this, this reservist quest, we see seven Scots are doing very well at recruiting people, others are not. What, what are your th- thoughts on the recruitment process? Well, it's a, it is a problem, and the problem is because... People, once they commit themselves to this, suddenly find that their boss says, are you really going off to camp and do this, the other? And, and they get lent on. There's no d- doubt about it by, by some of their, their companies not to take part. And, and, of course, that puts people off. I think the reserves are very, very important in two areas. One, of course, is to, to fill the holes that are in, in the armed forces thanks to cuts. And secondly, to connect with the public so that the pub population of this country can see and know people who serve and, and the people who are serving are no longer a sort of mystery group of people living in some weird land which is not inhabited by them by the population i think it's very important yeah just look at the afghan casualty list and count the reserves yeah uh, and that's that that's the starting point interesting you see at one time uh, a, a company might send somebody off to do a weekend uh, training with the TA. Mm. And on Monday morning, they would say, it's very good, I've got a manager back, far better, you know, leadership qualities have improved. improved." But then what happened with the TA? There was quite a reputation. If you joined up, you might be going off for six months and serving in a war zone, which is not necessarily bad for the the TA or, or the soldier or whatever. But the employer said, look, you just... That's not what really we imagined was going to happen. You've come back and you want to know where you are in the promotion chain at your company. 
uh, that's far more difficult to contend with. It is, but I mean, I was listening to something on the wireless yesterday about maternity leave and things like that, and shouldn't it be treated, Julian, in the same way as one has maternity? You know, if you go and do this, you can't basically be sacked. Well, maternity leave is, is legislated for. Yeah. In America, if, if, if a, a reservist is lent on by his company, then the, the, he, the, the company gets lent on by the United States government. Or, <laughs> and so this is, this is the point. We don't take them seriously. This is the real point. Uh, we, we, have, we want to use them. They do a fantastic job. There was one reservist who got a George Cross, a Royal Marine, uh, in Afghanistan. They're terrific people, but they're not supported by legislation. This is the point. Well, the other thing you've got to do, and there's the restructuring of the whole concept of what reservists can do, you've got to show uh, that reservists can take up a role in the services and be as good as the services themselves. Now, one place where that obviously does happen is in the medical corps, where something like 64% or 63% of, of medics is, is examined in the in, in time of war, and there's certainly the transition to RTDW, uh, would be civilians, they'd be reservists. Mm. So, therefore, don't sort of just say, right, come and join the army and you'll be a soldier, or come and join the navy and you go and drive a warship. It's not that. You've got to use your specialisation so that you can slip in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I myself witnessed the medical reserves, as you mentioned there, Christopher, in Afghanistan at the Royal Free Hospital. They were absolutely fantastic. Their skill set improved, so that's now benefiting the NHS. And the army, the military, get benefited from having top NHS people there, so it was a win-win, but it isn't necessarily that way. Major General Julian Thompson, thank you for joining us this week. Christopher Lee also, thank you for joining us, as ever, here on SITREP. Don't forget, you can uh, Twitter us at BFBS SITREP. And join us again next Next week, Kate Chabot will be back in the hot chair. But for me, Tim Cooper, thanks very much for joining me. Bye-bye. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.